You can be opening this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll begin our reading this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18. As many of you know, we're in the midst of a series of lessons on the essential doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, currently considering the, the doctrines concerning the church and how the church is to be governed. Last week, we considered the requirements of those that are going to fill positions of leadership in the local assembly, pastors and teachers, elders, deacons, and how important it is for them to walk according to that standard of godliness that we have clearly lined out for us in Scripture. And as we emphasized last week, God doesn't have two standards, one for the preacher and one for the, for the congregation. He has one standard of godliness. We are all his children, and he wants us all to live in a way that honors him. But those that are going to fulfill those positions of public ministry, they are accountable to the congregation and to other godly men and women to live a life that honors the Lord. And again, that doesn't mean that they're perfect or flawless or that they never fail, but that there is that constant desire to do the will of God. And when we fall short of that, there is a repentance and a returning to that life of godliness. It is essential. There's been so much reproach brought to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the carnality of preachers and evangelists and pastors that have chosen to live a life that's characterized by carnality, the lust of the flesh. And it brings reproach to this gospel, the, the only message that can bring salvation to a lost and dying world. So we want to make sure that the testimony of the local assembly, that it truly is a place where truth can be heard, but where it can also be seen, where it changes and transforms lives. And so we emphasize that teaching that we find in Scripture concerning the responsibility, the requirements, and the accountability of the leadership. Now this morning, we're going to turn the tables and we're going to look at the responsibility of the congregation to respond to these spiritual gifts and ministries that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has given for the edification of the body. It's important that the congregation's attitude and responses also be what they need to be if we as a local assembly are going to fulfill our responsibility to be the pillar and ground of truth. Now, as I give these truths and these doctrines concerning this aspect of your responsibility as a congregation, I want to make it clear that this congregation over the last 30-some years has had a testimony of applying and following these godly principles concerning how the congregation is to respond to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And so this is not a lesson of correction at all, but rather this congregation has been a testimony of how God honors his word when we honor his word, when we obey his word. But as I said last week, our, the next generation needs to understand how our congregation is to be conducted, what our responsibilities are as a congregation. And so this is why I'm going to teach this as if you've never heard it, as if you have never practiced it. And for the vast majority, that's not going to be the case. But for the generation coming up, 
they're soon going to be responsible to carry on the work and the ministry of this local assembly. And so they need to know the foundation on which we have built this assembly. And always remember that we, Abundant Grace Fellowship, Brother Doug, Brother Freestone, whoever else you want to think of, we are not the source of truth. It's not Brother Doug said so. The Word of God is the only source of truth. And that's what we must always go to. It is the last authority, first and last authority, for everything we do, for everything that we say, and how we conduct ourselves as a local assembly. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well, that is, they fulfill those requirements and always seeking the will of God, always living a life that honors the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The congregation of a local assembly has the responsibility before God for the material support of its pastor to enable them to dedicate themselves to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, whenever that is possible. Now, I have pastored smaller churches where they were not able to, to pay my daily needs financially. And so I worked full time, worked in construction all my life. And so there are times when that's not possible. But as much as is possible, it is the responsibility of the local assembly to, to give that financial support. We know there's been abuses with that. And we know that there are those that they use the ministry for that carnal gain. They just want to make all the money they can off of God's people. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God's principle about how he intends for the needs of those who preach God's word for them to be supported. And again, this congregation has been very generous, very obedient in, in this area. But it needs to continue that way so that the word of God can be proclaimed in its fullness and in its depth. First Corinthians chapter 16. This is a touchy subject and one that certainly has been abused by pastors and those in leadership. And so we want this, this biblical scriptural balance to understand what everybody's responsibility is, what the pastor's responsibility is, what the congregation's responsibility is, if we are going to be successful in proclaiming truth to a lost and dying world. First Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 15 through 18. I urge you, brethren... You know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. Talking about Paul's material needs, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. So here we see the responsibility of those who receive and benefit from the ministry of those who proclaim the word, 
sound doctrine, that those who receive that doctrine are to recognize the gift that Christ has given. Again, it's not to exalt the individual. These ministries are are not a sign of superiority. In fact, they are clearly presented as servants to minister. They are not authoritarian. They're not uh, dictators. And again, we know there's been abuse where that is the case, but that's not what Scripture teaches. But having said that, those who benefit, who receive that ministry, are to acknowledge that that comes from Jesus Christ. It's for my good. It's for my benefit, my spiritual and eternal benefit. And therefore, it is to be recognized and acknowledged and submitted to. Now, what is that ugly word submission? Our society hates that word. And yet it's one that the Bible uses often in many relationships. And this relationship as a pastor or those in leadership with the congregation, the word is used. What does it mean to submit to the pastor? Let's read Hebrews 13 where it says it even more strongly. Hebrews chapter 13. Now, again, these are not my rules and regulations, and you either accept it or you reject it. Hebrews 13, verses 17 and 18. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. That is, those that are faithfully serving the head. They watch out for our souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. There's where you start. That's where your submission starts. You pray that those in leadership and the pastor, you pray for me, that I would constantly be sensitive to the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit, that I would be in the Word of God, that I would proclaim nothing but the Word of God. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, that we would have a testimony of godliness in this Christ-rejecting world. The pastor and the congregation must work together if the local assembly is going to be a light for the world to be drawn to Jesus Christ. We must work together, each of us surrendering to the head of the body, but in our own responsibilities and our own place as members of that body. The congregation needs to acknowledge God-given authority, the God-given authority of pastor to administrate, to, to, to make decisions that will impact the direction of the assembly. And those decisions are not easy when they're, when they're done with a desire to truly know the will of God. And so that's why prayer is necessary. I often tell individuals that, that I need to correct because there's a, a negative impact on the congregation. And when I have to admonish them in some way, I often tell them, you know, I really have absolutely no authority over you, but what you acknowledge comes from God. I don't have a police force. I don't have a military. It's not my place to try to make you do what you're supposed to do. God hadn't called me to that. My responsibility is to proclaim the will of God, to teach the will of God so that you know what God has declared to be right in the word of God. And your submission to my authority to proclaim that word is something you have to acknowledge and submit to. It's not to me. 
It's not to the pastor. It's to the Word of God. And if it's not the Word of God, and I've often told folks this that have gotten angry when I, when I preach or when I have admonished them personally, it's, and it's always interesting that there are those that get mad at me after a sermon, and, and, and I know they're mad, and I, I have no idea why. I wasn't thinking about them when I was preaching or, or whatever, and they come up to me and, Brother Doug, why did you, why did you preach at me like that? Well, I kind of preached to all of us. If it's, and rather than get angry, stop and ask yourself, was what was proclaimed, was it the word of God or not? If it was just Brother Doug's opinion, ignore it. Don't get mad, just, well, that's his opinion. But if it's the word of God, you're not rejecting my authority. You're rejecting the authority of the word of God that has every right to tell you what to do that has every right to change us and transform us, to convict us. The Word of God has that power, as if God himself was standing right here. If I proclaim his word as revealed in the Bible, it's as if God himself was proclaiming and talking to you. This is why we come to church. It's not just to have ritual. It's not just to go through the motions. It's not to entertain ourselves, but it's to be transformed little by little, into the very image of Jesus Christ. And only the Word of God can do that. Not my opinion, not yours. Only the Word of God can do that in my life and in your life. Apparently, according to this passage, what a pastor has to say about your spiritual life seems to matter. Someday I'll have to give an account. I don't know what weight that holds, because obviously God knows every heart. I don't know why he's giving me this responsibility or this part in what he's doing in your life, but he has. And so once again, the submission ultimately is not to the pastor. It's to the head, as long as those in leadership are living the truth and proclaiming the truth. And we mentioned last week when leadership is not living a godly life, when they're not preaching truth then the congregation not only does not have a responsibility and obligation to submit to that, they have an obligation to remove that kind of leadership. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we need that godly balance working together for us to be the kind of congregation that we need to be, the local assembly. Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 5 and read verses 12 and 13. God's teaching on this subject of submission of the congregation to those who minister the word, there are checks and balances. This is not those in leadership just arrogantly telling people what to do. If if that's the case, again, the congregation has a responsibility to remove such an individual. But here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we kind of see the balance And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them because they're such wonderful people, because they're beautiful, because they 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 speak well. No, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Esteem them very highly in love for their works sake. Be at peace among yourselves. We esteem those who have been given ministries of public ministry because of the work that they do. It's not their personality. If you're drawn to personalities, you will sooner or later be disappointed. (laughs) 
sooner or later. But if you're drawn to the word, you will never be disappointed because the word points you to Jesus Christ and Jesus will never disappoint you. Esteem them very highly for their work's sake. And you know, one of the greatest ways that you can assist a pastor to do the work of the ministry, be at peace among yourselves. There have been times in my ministry that, that a good part of my energy, time, prayers have had to be dedicated to solving disputes among God's people in the congregation. That zaps physical strength, emotional strength, spiritual strength, when the pastor has to spend time doing that, rather than studying the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God. This is why Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Look for what's best for the body. Too many families from time to time have, well, my family, my kids have been insulted, and they don't get to do this, and they don't get to do that, and so that leads to conflicts and Stop and ask yourself, not what's best for my family. Oh, that's, that's what the world wants you to, number one, and then after number one, myself, then I'm my family. No. What's the will of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's best for other families? What's best for this child? What's best for the congregation as a whole? Seek the will of God. That's what love is. It's a selflessness. So this is why we have this teaching in First Thessalonians 5. And now we're going to touch a subject that I seldom touch on, and that is, how is the local assembly's work to be financed? Because there's all kinds of opinions, and boy, has there been abuse. But those of you that have been in this assembly any time, you know that we don't have a fundraising program, even though we're in the midst of a building project. We don't harp on, well, if you want the Lord to bless you, you better, you better give a lot of money. Because the more you give, the more God's going to make You're just going to be rich if you give all your money to us. You don't hear that here because that's not what the Bible teaches. And yet this assembly has been the example of God honoring the pattern of why we give, what we give, and how we give. So we want to consider this. Again, not because this congregation hasn't done this, but so the next generation knows how things are supposed to function. How, how does this work continue? Because we know that there are very practical and material and physical needs that are associated with having a local congregation. Most Christians, this is why many churches and denominations have fundraising programs, is because they want to get people excited about something. And sadly, many Christians only give for what excites them. Oh, I'd like to see a new building. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that. Or, yeah, I'd like to do this program or that program, so I'm going to give to that. But that's not God's order. And this is why there's that constant need to raise, raise money, is, is because that's their focus, and that's the way they do things. But let's look at what God teaches concerning how the material needs of a local assembly are to be met. Let's go to Malachi 3. We'll start in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, we're going to see that it's God's will for the spiritual leadership, the pastor, the elders, and in this case, we, ha we have what we call a, a board that makes these decisions, and we're not big on labeling everybody what exactly they are. There are some that, are, that I would classify as deacons, though we haven't put it necessarily on paper, uh, 
because they're they're servants. And I'll just mention this, not to embarrass Brother Dave, but Brother Dave Smazik. Uh, this congregation owes a, a debt of gratitude to Brother Dave for all the work he's doing on the, the project for saving us a ton of money. Um, that's a deacon. Uh, Brother Dave, you won't hear him preach or teach a Sunday school lesson, but he serves this congregation. And there are others that do the same. Those in places of leadership have been given the responsibility to know, and they're in the position to know what the needs, the financial needs of the assembly are. It is not a democratic organization where everybody has a vote. Well, I want this done. I want to spend this money here. Those that have been given these public ministries, responsibilities have been given the authority to make those decisions because they're in a place to know those needs. And this is what we we see the, the, the pattern beginning in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they, they had what they call the storehouse system. In other words, all the offerings that were given under the, the old priesthood were brought into one place. And there then the leadership, beginning with Moses and then, then the priesthood, then the decisions were made how those offerings were to be made, Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, again, this and other verses like this have been abused by the so-called prosperity ministry, that if you want to be rich, you give to God and he'll give you more. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this passage teaches. It simply teaches if you honor God, he will see to it that you have what you need when you need it. And more often than not, that, that supply is abundant. But that, if you're giving to get more, you're using God as a slot machine. You'll put in this amount and pull the lever, and then God has to just pour out the coins. No. Your motive to give is because you love God. You love the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore you love sound doctrine. That's your motive. It's love. It's not wealth. It's not riches. No, God's going to do his part. Let's go to Nehemiah 12. If you just want to write down verse 44 of Nehemiah 12, we have the same example here. For time's sake, I need to keep moving here. But it's the storehouse. Everything was brought into one place, and then the leadership was responsible and accountable to God. To, to use it as it was intended for the glory of God. The New Testament follows that pattern. Let's go to Acts chapter 4 now in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, there you can read later that the new Christians, because they were so grateful for what, for the salvation that they had received through the ministry of the apostles, they brought their offerings In fact, in this case, because there was such persecution in Jerusalem, they put all of their belongings together so that everybody would be taken care of. Now, that's not necessarily God's plan today, that everybody give everything. But in in that case and in that day, it was necessary just for the survival of the Christians that were being so, so persecuted. So they brought everything, and then it was the disciples' responsibility to see to it that it went where it needed to go. 1 Corinthians 16, here we see the Apostle Paul. He was making a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. 
And notice the standards that he uses for that collection. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collection when I come. So, see, Paul wasn't one of those evangelists that came. And I've been in meetings where there were actually four or five offerings taken in one meeting. Paul says, I don't want any offerings taken when I'm there. You set it aside. You just do what God lays on your heart in obedience to him. Not in obedience to Paul, but as the Lord leads. And when I come, whomever you approve, here's the accountability. Paul wasn't just taking his money and running out of town. But those that were going to oversee this offering and see that it was used properly. Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Paul was in charge of this offering. Others, Paul was accountable to others, how that offering was spent. But it was given to those that had acknowledged godly lives in order to distribute as it was necessary. This is still God's pattern. If you want to go to 1 Corinthians 9, we don't have time this morning, but take time this afternoon to read this passage, verses 5 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, this is part of Paul's detailed teaching on giving. God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives because they love the Word of God. God gave us His gift, (laughs) the gift of His Son, And our response to that is to give materially, financially, to the work of the proclamation of the same truth that saved us so that it might save others, the same truth that builds us up and gets us ready for the coming of the Lord. We want to support that work so others can also be ready when Jesus comes. I have found the most generous givers among God's people are those that give because they love sound doctrine. Not necessarily because they love me, not because I'm the best preacher that they've ever heard, but because they hear what they need spiritually to grow. And when you love God's word, you're going to want to promote it. And to do that, it takes financial responsibility. We begin with the tithe. You say the big argument, oh, tithe is not even mentioned in the New Testament. That's Old Testament. That's, that's the law. We're not under law. We're under the group. We're not given a 10%. That's for the Old Testament. When was the tithe first established in Scripture? It was before the law was given with Abraham. Abraham paid a tithe, not because God demanded it, but out of appreciation for the blessings of God. So tithe was, was established before the law. Children, young people, parents, beginning with If they get an allowance or if they have a side job or whatever, from the very beginning, they need to learn that that 10% belongs to God. It's not, you don't even consider it as part of your, your gain. That goes to the Lord. Do it cheerfully. Do it because you love the Lord. But it is something that needs to be taught from the beginning. And this is why I say these lessons are for the next generation. If all of God's people faithfully obey as this congregation has been an example of that, there'll be what needs to be in the storehouse whenever the needs arise. God will see to it, and he has. We, uh, Our treasures, the Blackwoods and now the Kims, 
they have been amazed. And as good stewards, they, they always, both the Blackwoods and the Kims from time to time, things are getting a little close. And then God supplies. And we didn't make any big announcements or whatever. God supplies the needs of his people that honor him. But again, this congregation has that responsibility, every individual, to do your part because you love the Lord. And then, of course, there are offerings over and above as the Lord lays on your heart. But that tenth belongs to the Lord. When you honor him, he'll honor you. So I think we'll close there this morning. But these truths are so fundamental. And we see so many different ways of administering local assemblies. And we've seen many abuses in these areas and neglecting of these doctrines. But this is what we do and why we do it. It's because God has revealed it to be his will. And I thank God for the opportunity for this local assembly to be a part of that eternal work of grace that God's doing. Let's have a song in closing.